Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys serving us this morning. Let me ask you, if you would please, to open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. As we continue our series, in fact, wrap our series called Knowing the Triune God, we spent a couple of weeks, two previous to this one, now our third week, thinking about the Trinity, certainly not enough, but uh, what can you do? That's how it goes. We could spend so much longer thinking about the triune nature of God. We could give so many more pop quizzes and have so many more conversations about God in himself, who he is most fundamentally. As we think about getting to know God, we realize that that is the very thing that Jesus himself said is eternal life. John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of God is eternal life, and it's important to know God, and I think we we know that, of course, but I'm not sure that we think most deeply about the realities that to know God is, is beginning, of, first of all, at its basis, is to know that God is triune. To know that God is not just a ruler or a creator or a savior, he is those things, but before he was any of those things, he was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that fundamentally shapes the way, not only that you see God, but it shapes the way that you live your life and the way that you see other people as well. So we continue our series and finish our series this morning called Knowing the Triune God. As we think this morning then about living in the knowledge of God, we've been asking a series of questions that have shaped each one of our messages. Uh, First of all, part one, the first question we asked was, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? If we're going to think about knowing God, then we need to know what know actually means. What does it mean to know God? And we concluded from that, based on several passages and landing in 1 John chapter 1, we concluded from that, that to know God means to be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So salvation, the knowledge of God, is not just knowing about God, but knowing God. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? A lot of people can know about God. Satan knows about God. But it's an entirely different thing to know God. I'm not sure the church really gets that very well. I'm not sure I get that very well. To know God is to be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. This is why a a mere definition of fellowship as socializing will not do. It's a participation in the life of God himself. That's what it is to know God. To be a partaker, as Peter will tell us this morning, to be a partaker of the divine 
nature. God in us and us in God. That's what it is to know God. And then secondly, part two, last week, we thought about how, we asked how we can know God. How is this actually accomplished? If, if knowing God is to be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity, then how does that work? How does that happen? How, uh, how if it's not just a mere factual exchange of information, but if it's actually an inherent relationship, uh, an inherently personal thing, then how are we to see this accomplished? And based on Ephesians 1, we saw that the Father initiates our salvation by election and predestination. The Son accomplishes our salvation by redemption in His blood. And we saw that the Spirit seals our salvation So that God will get the inheritance that he has claimed in his people, his saints. And now this morning, as we come to part three and the final study in our series, we ask the question, how must we respond to the knowledge of God? How must we respond to the knowledge of God? So far, really, fundamentally, we've not taken on any commands from God. We've been thinking about what God has done for us. As we studied through Ephesians 1, or if you read through it even now, do you see anything in there that you did? No. It's an entirely an act of the triune God. But now that we have come to know God, it's a right question to ask, how should we then live? If I am in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if I am now in the relations of eternal love, if I have been swept up into the very life of God, what does that mean for me? Does that change anything for me? I think the answer to that is quite obvious. So then we ask this morning, how must we respond to the knowledge of God? We could spend a long, long time on that question. In fact, that is the question that your Christian life rests upon. All our Christian effort is the answer to that question. How must we respond to the knowledge of God? We could give a long list. But I think Peter has some helpful instruction for us at the beginning of his second letter, a letter that he wrote shortly before his death to the same people that he wrote 1 Peter, and in a situation that found them dealing with the dangerous nature, the dangerous reality of false teachers. Surprise, surprise. The church has been plagued by people who teach something other than the doctrine that Jesus taught and that he handed to the apostles and that the apostles then gave to the churches. And so Peter writes to them, most especially telling them to continue in the faith and most especially telling them that they need to pay attention to the scriptures in contrast to the teachings of those who were attempting to deceive them. And so he begins his letter then by really answering our question for us, how must we respond to the knowledge of God? And Peter will give us this answer in verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, 
or Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and the instruction that you give to us in it. We pray, O God, that you now would help us to receive this instruction, that you would open our minds, open our eyes, humble our hearts to receive the nourishment that your word gives to us. We praise you that you have given us instructions. You have not only told us what you have done for us, but you have also told us how we are to live in light of what you have done for us. You have not only told us about our past and our present, but you have told us about our future. A future which has been secured by you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray, O God, that you would help us to rest in your promises and to work in your promises as we look to the glorious entrance that we have in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot wait to be welcomed by you, Jesus, into your kingdom. To hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my Father's rest. But until then, Lord, we long to live for you. We long to respond rightly to the knowledge of you that you have given to us. So help us. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we have the answer to our question. How must we respond to the knowledge of God? Peter tells us. And you'll notice that in his response, he gives us a sort of a roadmap that begins in this life and then ends all the way in heaven. So how are we to respond then to the knowledge of God? Well, first of all, in verses 1 to 4, we see that we need to understand the resources God has given us. Verses 1 to 4 highlight for us the resources that God has given us. And you might think to yourself, well, that's not really a response, is it? Yes, it is. We'll see, as we see in every other part of the scriptures, and as Peter loves to do, as we saw in 1 Peter, Peter loves to mix in indicatives and imperatives. He loves to mix in statements of fact about what God has done for you and statements of command about what you are to do in light of that. But before we can think about how we live for God, we must remember what God has done for us so that we can live for God. If we get that order wrong, then we just become a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees. Self-righteousness will always burn you out. But remembering the resources that God has given to you, that, that is the key to the Christian life. So what are these resources then? Well, first of all, Peter highlights for us the gift of faith. He begins, Simeon Peter, sometimes called Simon, sometimes called Simeon, Simeon Peter, and he describes himself as a servant or a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's not concerned about emphasizing his social status. Peter is concerned about teaching people who Jesus has made him to be. And who Jesus has made him to be, first of all, even before he is an apostle, is a slave of Jesus Christ, a badge which Peter wore proudly, a badge which every Christian wears proudly. So Peter is a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this gives him the authority and the position from Jesus Christ to be able to give us this instruction. And then he tells who he's writing to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter, in his first letter, spelled out specifically by region who it was that he was writing to. But Peter, in his second letter, perhaps affected by how close he was to his very own death, Peter, in his second letter, is not so concerned about the proximity in which they live, the location in which they live. Peter is concerned to communicate to them about the gift they have received from God. To those who have obtained a faith. If you obtain something or receive something, the only action you did was hold out your hands. 
Peter is highlighting for us, he's highlighting for them, the reality that the faith that they stand in, the faith that they hold, the faith that they will defend, the faith that Peter was about to die for, is inherently a gift that God gives. And then he spells out the quality of that faith. I'm sure that they, like us, wrestled with the same problem. The problem of elevating spiritual leaders above themselves. They likely thought, as we thought, well, of course Peter can live for Jesus. He's an apostle for crying out loud. But Peter wants them to know that even he, as an apostle, has the same exact type of faith that they, as non-apostles, and in fact, many Gentiles, have. That their faith is not second class to an apostle or to a Jew, but in fact, their faith is of the same standing as the apostle himself. Why? How could that be? Notice what the faith rests upon. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How is it that the faith that these Christians held and the faith that we Christians hold, how is it that it is of equal standing with an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who saw him face to face both before his death and after his resurrection? How is it that the faith that they hold can be the very same thing? Because the faith is not dependent upon them. The faith is dependent upon the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how. And so you go down the line of godly people from the 60s AD all the way to 2022. And you see that the saints have stood not on their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the thing that Christians get that non-Christians don't get. I'm a Christian not because of what I've done. I'm a Christian because of what Jesus has done. And so people look at Christians and they say, well, you're just a bunch of goody two-shoes. All you're ever concerned about is doing good. And we say, well, we are concerned about doing good. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not a good person. In fact, Jesus said that there's only one who's good, God. I'm just a sinner. But before God, by the Holy Spirit, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ gets credited to me by faith in him. A faith that has been obtained, not exercised, but a faith that God has given to me so that what I hold is entirely secured by the one who has given it and by the one who is the foundation for it, Jesus Christ. And so he tells them about this great gift of faith. And then he tells them about the grace and peace that they have received in verse 2. What's the second resource that God has given to us? 
grace and peace. In fact, in verse 2, not only does Peter mention grace and peace, one of Paul's favorite things to mention, but he actually prays and, and blesses them in such a way that the grace and peace in which they stand in the faith and righteousness of Jesus Christ, he prays that it would actually be multiplied to them. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace, they are already in. Grace and peace, the Christian is already in. The grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, all the blessings of God, adoption as sons of God, everything that is not hell is grace. And in addition to that grace, and as an outflow of that grace, the Christian receives peace. I'm God's. Who could come against me if God is for me? What could ever separate me from the love of God? Not a diagnosis. Not a financial burden. Not family drama. Not even Satan himself. And so this grace that is given to the Christian by Jesus Christ, this grace then brings a peace. A peace with God so that there is now no more enmity with God. We are no longer enemies of God, but we are now sons and daughters of God. But also a practical and even subjective peace that lets me sleep at night. And Peter prays then that this grace would be multiplied to them, that it would increase abundantly, that it would flow out, that their cup, as David says in Psalm 23, would overflow. And isn't this the very promise of God? How is this grace and peace going to be multiplied then to the Christian? Peter tells us. It will be multiplied in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The way in which this peace, this grace will be multiplied to us, the way in which it will flow increasingly and abundantly is specifically in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this word for knowledge is a a superlative. Some of our translations say full knowledge. It speaks here most likely to the very fact of our conversion. It reminds these Christians, it reminds us that before I met Jesus Christ, I did not know God. Perhaps I knew about him. I maybe was catechized. I maybe memorized all the Awana verses. I maybe was even baptized. I knew about him, but I didn't know him. But here, Peter reminds us that it is specifically through this knowledge, in this knowledge, that grace and peace will be multiplied to us. What resources has God given to the Christian? He's given us faith. He's given us grace and peace. And then Peter continues. Not only has he given us faith and grace and peace, but he's given us all we need for godly living. 
And this is what Peter highlights for us in verses 3 and 4. All we need for godly living. There's a little bit of a difficult translation. Peter's Greek is difficult here. Verse 3 really begins with something like seeing as his divine power. But many of our translations smooth that out, so it's a little easier to read. His divine power, Peter says, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As if the gift of faith wasn't enough, as if grace and peace weren't enough, Peter tells us, and it's as if, it's as if he remembers vividly what it was like to deny Jesus three times. And then what it was like to be restored by Jesus three times. It's as if Peter puts his arm around us and says, hey, listen, I know it's hard, but you need to know that your God has given to you everything you need to live for him. Why would we need that reminder? Well, I think we could develop a list just with this last week, couldn't we? We need that reminder because life's hard. We need that reminder because Paul tells us that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus tells us that the world hates him, and now that we're in him, the world also hates us. We need that reminder because life is hard. And so that difficulty of life, the very fact that life is hard, is then met and overpowered by the resources that God gives to those who know him. Peter says that his divine power, what is it that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Specifically about God, his divine power. What do we know about the power of God? Well, we know about the miracles of God. We know that if God wants to, he can say, let there be, and then there just is And most especially, we know that God sent his son. And somehow, the son took on to himself flesh. Without compromising any essence of his deity, added to himself, Philippians 2 says, flesh. And then, in that flesh, the Son of God lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. So that mankind could get a fresh start. And this is exactly why in Romans 5, Paul splits the human race between those who are in Adam 
and those who are in Christ. What did Jesus come to do? In his power, he came to give mankind a fresh start. To accomplish in an even greater way what God had made everyone to do. Know him and live for him. And we know then in his flesh, he laid down his life so that he could be the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against sin. And he rose from the grave so that now all who come to him in faith, all who are needy, all who realize that they are enemies of God by nature, can be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. What does it take to accomplish that? It takes divine power, does it not? And this, Peter says, is the same power that he has used to grant Christians all things that pertain to life and godliness. Which means the Christian can never say I just can't do it. Go with me for a minute here. You don't have to publicize it, but go with me for a minute here. I want you in your mind as best you can right now, first thought that pops into it, I want you in your mind to picture your biggest struggle with sin. I want you to think about the thing that you think is never going to go away the thing that you're even afraid to tell other people about. And now I want to ask you, what does the Bible say about that? It says, my friend, that his divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can't do it on your own. This is why you must remember the resources that God has given to you. Because you don't do it on your own. You don't have to do it on your own. How is this divine power that has granted to us all things, how is it exercised? How does it come through us? Peter explains, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is not to say that the more you know about God, the more power you have in your life. This is to say that every Christian knows God. And that every Christian, whether they're five or 105, has the very same capacity to live for God. This granting of all things comes through the knowledge of him. And who is this him? He's the, it's the one, he is the one who called us to his own glory and excellence, or perhaps by his own glory and excellence, or through his own glory and excellence. Peter highlights for us, once again, the resume of Jesus Christ. What does he have? Well, he has a lot of things. But here, Peter wants to point us specifically to his glory. Glory, which Peter is going to say in a little bit, that he saw when Jesus was transfigured on the mount. 
glory that if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know about a glory that shines so brightly and exposes the sin of mankind so deeply that Isaiah was left thinking he was going to die when he saw the glory of God. And yet it's this very glory by which he has called us. And we know then that it is this very glory which we will be in, brought into one day. And not only his glory, but his excellence, his, his moral purity. How is he able to call sinners who are of opposite than excellence, who are filthy, dirty in their sin, how is he able to call them because he's excellent? You will never know him unless you realize the guilt and the filth of your sin and the supremacy of his excellence. And you realize that the bridge between the gap is the payment that he paid and the faith that he gives. So this granting, this first granting comes to us then through the knowledge of him who has called us. And then there's a second granting in verse 4, by which he has granted to us, so it's by this glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, Peter could have just said his promises, right? But Peter wants to emphasize the quality of the promises. Peter says there are two things. They're precious, which means they're invaluable. You can't put a price tag on these promises. And then he says they're very great which is a superlative of the word mega, of the word great. They're not just great, they're very great. They're exceedingly great. They're, they're the greatest that you can imagine. And these are the promises of God. And these things, these promises, are the very thing in which he has granted to us. I wonder then how much you know about the promises of God. How do we overcome temptation? How do we anchor our souls in times like when searching for the right word here and also trying to be careful when a monster goes into a school and unloads on children how do we anchor our souls in those times the precious and very great promises of God what is the sure remedy for every ailment that plagues you the promises of God. And yet, so often, what do we do when we find particular deficiencies in our Christian living? We go and we buy the book that is specific to that ailment. We go and we think about what I have to do to conquer this sin. And I want to be clear, that's not wrong. It's just not the first step. 
the first step is to remember the resources you've been given. And the next step is to live in those resources. If you miss the first step, well, you ever gone up a set of stairs and thought you were aiming for the first step and missed it? What happens? Your face tends to meet the fifth or sixth step. The very same thing happens in the Christian life. When I jump from what God has done for me, when I just say, ah, I know that, what do I got to do for God? And I forget about what God's done for me and I jump to what I do for God, I fall flat on my self-righteous face. Think about how many times in your Christian life you've been burnt out. How many times you've said to yourself, and maybe to others, I just don't think I can do this anymore. It's too much. The bar is too high. In that moment, what have you done? You've forgotten how you got there in the first place. You've forgotten that you did not become a son of God because you're awesome. You did not become a daughter of God because his squishy little heart just loves you so much. You've been adopted by the Father through the Son and that is secured by the Spirit. And that is the basis for the Christian life. That is the very first way in which we respond to the knowledge of God. We stay there. We stay there. And we don't forget we're not going to study the whole book of First Peter, or Second Peter rather, but Peter is going to say, actually, look down at verse 12. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities so that you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear. And I, and I will make every effort so that after my b- departure, you may be able to, at any time, recall these things. Why is Peter so concerned about reminding them? Because Peter knows how easy it is to forget. And as he feels the cold breath of death on his neck, he says, listen, listen, saints. I want you to remember. I know you know, but you don't know like you think you know. You need to remember. And he reminds them. It's these promises that God has granted to us. And and what then happens because of these promises, he's granted us these promises halfway through verse four, so that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Which leaves you scratching your head, right? It almost maybe even leaves you uncomfortable. Wait a second. Partakers of the divine nature, that's got to be a bad translation. The early church used to call this the deification of the saints. A phrase that to them by no means meant that they would become God but a phrase that probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Deification. Deification means to be made like God. Deity is God. Deification to be like God. 
The early church had no problem thinking in these categories. I think what would be most comfortable for us is to use the biblical word, glorification. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Paul says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There will be a physical and visible change to the body of the Christian when he or she sees Jesus. This is the resurrection body, a glorified body, a body that is a partaker of the divine nature. It's almost too much to grasp, isn't it? And then he explains this even further. We've become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Notice we have not escaped from the world. We still live here. But we've escaped from its corruption. Because we've escaped the sinful desire or the lusts that once dominated our lives. Peter here is speaking of the ability that the Christian has to say no to the temptation of sin. No matter what's going on outside of us in the corruption of the world, we are not bound any longer to that sin anymore. We're free. We're partakers of the divine nature and this means we can actually say no when temptation comes. And all of this is still a gift of God. We have a new ability to resist the temptation of sin because we've been filled by the Spirit, we have been united with the Son, and we have been adopted by the Father. And that changes everything for us. And so, he's given us all we need for godly living. We see, the first of all, the resources that we have Secondly, in verses 5 to 9, we see the response that God expects from us. Now we can get to the application. Now we get to the commands. But not until we remember what God's done for us. The response that God expects from us is here in verses 5 to 9. And the first of these responses is to pursue godly character in verses 5 to 7. Peter says in verse 5, for this very reason. For what very reason? For the very reason that we are now partakers of the divine nature and have escaped the corruption of the world in the desires of the flesh. For that reason. For the reason that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness and has granted to us his precious and very great promises. For that reason. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives a list 
of virtues, of, of characteristics, of godly qualities in which we are to make every effort to add into our faith. The command here is to supplement or to supply. Then before we get to supply or to supplement, we get the way in which we are supposed to supplement or supply our faith by making every effort or by pursuing with all diligence. You see, now Peter has told us what God's done for us, and now he tells us what we are to do in light of what God's done for us. And he tells us, effectively, Christianity is not for the lazy. If there's one thing the Christian is to be singularly laser-focused on, it is the development of godly character. We do that through our parenting, through our marriages, through our singleness, through our jobs, through our service. But that is the goal, to grow in godliness. Make every effort, he says, and yet I wonder how much we put effort into many, many other things before we actually put effort into the one thing Peter tells us to do. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Notice that Peter begins with faith and then he extends from faith this chain that leads us all the way from faith to love. This was a common way of uh, explaining virtue in Peter's day. Even the secular philosophers used it. In fact, they used many of these very same characteristics. But Peter says these characteristics are based on the foundation of faith. What faith, Peter? the faith that you have obtained by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Supplement that faith then. Add to that faith then, first of all, virtue or excellence. The same word that was used back in chapter three to describe what Jesus has. Supplement your faith with virtue or with excellence. Peter says that we are to make every effort to be growing in moral excellence. Socrates, Aristotle, they both said the very same thing. Because the world understands that moral excellence is good. Everybody likes people who are good people, right? The world understands this. But the Christian gets this in a way that is entirely different than the world. Why are we to strive for moral excellence? Not so that it can get you a better standing in society, but because Jesus is morally excellent. And I want to be like Jesus. That's why. And in addition then to this moral excellence, this virtue, we add to that virtue knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, Peter will explain knowledge of what at the end of his book. 2 Peter chapter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What knowledge is the Christian to grow in? Specifically, knowledge about Jesus. How many Christians can tell you more about the historical geography of Israel than they can about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. 
How many Christians can rattle off more facts about Capernaum than can tell you presently what Jesus is doing right now? That's the type of knowledge that we are to make every effort to pursue. And it's not as though you can't crack a book and read a geography book, get a geography lesson. But in all honesty, I say this as the one who does this, in all honesty, does anything about Capernaum delight your soul? Does anything about Jesus not delight your soul? You see, there's a difference there, isn't there? We are not just a bunch of eggheads. We should not be just a bunch of eggheads who run around bumping into people because our heads are so fat with information. We pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And sometimes geography helps us do that, but not as an end of itself. We pursue the knowledge of Jesus Christ because that's what people who really know him actually do. So we supplement our, our virtue with knowledge and then to knowledge, Peter says, add self-control. Self-control. This takes us back then to the escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does it take to avoid sinning for a Christian? Well, amongst other things, it takes self-control. It takes the ability to rein in that emotion, to pull back in that word that you so desperately want to say and say, no, God wouldn't want me to think that. God wouldn't want me to say that. God wouldn't want me to act that way. God wouldn't want me to hit send, whatever, fill in the blank. God would not want me to do that. And this is what we need if we are to live for Jesus Christ, self-control. It actually matters how we live in this world. In his first book, Peter told these folks to be careful by to be careful in the way that they live before non-believers. He said to let your conduct be honorable among the Gentiles. Meaning, the Bible tells us it is important the way we live before non-Christians. They're going to say all kinds of wrong things about us, but not all the time. We need to make sure that those wrong things that are said about us aren't actually right. And so we need self-control if we're going to live in this world, in this body that is still plagued by its temptations. And then, in addition to that self-control, Peter says to add steadfastness. If self-control is the ability to say no to sin, steadfastness is the ability to keep going when things are hard. The word steadfastness means the ability to bear up underneath the weight of a situation. And we all know what it's like to be under the weight of a situation, don't we? That moment when your heart starts to beat a little bit faster, when you're head pounds a little bit, when you feel a tightness in your chest, or that moment when your heart is broken and you just think, that's it, I'm done, I'm tapping out. 
we make every effort to supplement our faith with steadfastness. I wonder how much energy we exert trying to get out of the difficulties that God has put us in. Get me out of this. Get me out. Get me out. Just pray that I would get out of it. There's not necessarily anything wrong with wanting to get out of it, but the reality is if you're in it, you're in it. And if you're in it, it's by the sovereign hand of God. So rather than frantically trying to get out of every difficult situation, what we need to do is apply steadfastness and say, Lord, I don't like where I'm at, but I'm here. And I need your help to faithfully endure this difficulty. Help me to be steadfast, just as Jesus, you were steadfast when you looked to the cross. That's what one of the things that the Christian is to make every effort in doing. And of course, then it makes sense why Paul would say, make every effort to do that, because it's hard, isn't it? To our steadfastness, then he says to add godliness. He's telling us already that God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So everything that we need, we have. And so Peter just says simply, use what you've been given. God's given you everything you need that pertains to godliness, so just use it, live in it. We do this best, in fact, we do all of these things best by getting to know Jesus. By seeing how Jesus responded to situations. By following, as Peter says in his first letter, by following the example of Jesus. Walking in his footsteps. This is how we pursue godliness best. And then to our godliness, we add brotherly affection. This is the word Philadelphia, where the Greek word for love, one of four words. But it's specific love that is intended to be exercised within the body of Christ. He's going to say then love, agape love, a love that is extended to all. But before he gets to that, the cap on all of this, he wants to remind Christians of their obligation to love other Christians. We might think, well, of course we know to do that. But we all know what it's like to be in a church for a while. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And when you put a couple of sinners together, the sparks fly, don't they? And so Peter says, you need to make every effort to make sure that you keep on loving each other the way Jesus told you to love. You keep on serving each other the way Jesus told you to serve. And then, of course, he finishes off with love, which the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of these things are a chain that is connected. All of these things are the godly character in which we are to pursue. And then he tells us not just to pursue godly character, but to be fruitful and not forgetful in verses 8 and 9. 
He continues the importance of these qualities. It's really literally in verse 8, it says, for if these qualities are yours, and then many of our Bibles then continue to use the word qualities or something like it. It's literally things, these things are yours, but quality sounds better than things, doesn't it? So he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, two things there, you must possess them and you must be growing in them, right? That's what he's saying then what happens? They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful. Dormant and just like the fig tree that Jesus cursed that bore no fruit. We understand the importance in the Christian life of bearing fruit. That's what God does in the life of the Christian. He bears fruit, and yet we are ourselves to bear fruit. And so Peter says, if we fail to make every effort in pursuing these qualities in light of what God's done for us, then it's as if we're not even a Christian. We're ineffective and we're unfruitful. Specifically in what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then not only do we run the risk of being unfruitful if these qualities are not ours and increasing, but then verse 9 tells us that we run the risk of being forgetful. He continues, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter says, if, if these qualities, if, if you analyze your life or if you analyze the life of someone else, who says, I'm a Christian, if these qualities, Peter says, if they're not there, then what has happened in that person's life is that they're blind and they've forgotten the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins. Which makes you stop and scratch your head, right? How could someone possibly forget the most significant thing that they had ever once known? We forget it when we skip the first step and we jump straight to what am I supposed to do? When we skip what God has done and we go straight to what am I supposed to do, we forget it. And not only do we forget it, pretty soon we stop caring about it. And Peter leaves us with some tension here. Peter's speaking really as if the person who forgets these things is a genuine Christian. But he leaves room for the reality that they may have never even known this to begin with. This failure to pursue these qualities is what leaves someone, one of the things at least, that leaves someone with a lack of assurance of their salvation. This then brings us to the third and final point, which I want to point out for us. We've seen the resources that God has given to us. We've seen the response that God expects from us. And then thirdly, we see the results God will give us. The resources he has given us, the results he will give us in verses 10 and 11. First of all, he gives us a stable life. Flowing right off the the train of thought, he says, Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent, there's our word again, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
Put your effort into the confirmation of the work of God in calling you and electing you to salvation. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, Peter says. It's not to say that you won't have a difficult time, but Peter is effectively saying you will not fall from the grace of God. If you practice these things, Jesus Christ will always be your center focus and you will always live for him. And that life then will lead you right up into the gates of heaven itself in verse 11. For in this way, in this way, what's the way? Pursuing these qualities with all diligence. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want a rich provision when you enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Pursue these qualities, Peter says. Pursue them because you can pursue them. Pursue them as you remember that God's given you everything you need to pursue them. Make every effort, Peter says, to kill your sin and live for your God. So how must we then respond to the knowledge of God? Very simply, we live for God. And isn't this what Peter has been explaining to us? We live for God. In part one of our series, we considered what does it mean to know God? And we saw that to know God means to be brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. Part two, we asked how can we know God? And from Ephesians 1, we saw that we can know God as the Father initiates our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit seals our salvation. And then this morning, we asked the crucial question, how must we respond to the knowledge of God? And we can summarize it with the very simple yet deeply profound statement, we must live for God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, John 17, 3. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, Jeremiah 9.23. Packer says, what of all the states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God in Hosea 6.6. In these sentences, Packer says, We have said a very great deal. Our point is one to which every Christian heart will warm, though the person whose religion is merely formal will not be moved by it. And by this very fact, 
his unregenerate state may be known. What we have said provides at once a foundation, shape and goal for our lives, plus a principle of priorities and a scale of values. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. And then he says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Heavenly Father, we completely agree. And we pray, Lord, that you would make this the theme of our life. That there is nothing better, nothing higher than knowing you. Remind us of the resources that you have secured for us, resources that you yourself have given to us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Remind us of the requirements that you have for us. Energize us with those resources so that we might pursue godly character, not be unfruitful and not forget. And remind us of what we have coming for us in the knowledge of you. A warm welcome into your very kingdom, Jesus. Teach us these things, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.